Welcome to Rockstock Channel. For the first time, our good friend, Alex Grant. I can't believe it's been this long. We have had not had you on the podcast or on video, but uh, very privileged to, on Martin Luther King Day, you know, interview the Alex Grant. Uh, a couple of years ago, Alex, you might have said, I have a dream. DLE uh, might have some traction in the lithium universe. And looking back at 2021, I called it uh, the year of the DLE unicorn on RK Equities scoreboard. I think there were three DLE related uh, stories, uh, Lake Resources, Vulcan, and Standard Lithium, all which reached a billion market cap. And then Lilac uh, raised, uh, was a series B with uh, Chris Saka and Breakthrough Energy Ventures and uh, I think uh, BMW or some dollars have come in on the VC side and then some offtakes without dollars came into Vulcan, uh, Volkswagen, Renault, Stellantis, and LG. And then GM uh, invested a few venture capital dollars in Control Thermal. At the end of the year, you had Rio Tinto buying into Rincon in Argentina, which is a DLE project. Um, and also late last year, Aramet uh, went from mothballing their project to bringing in the Chinese partner, you know, Qingshan to fully fund that. And then Pasco, who has been testing this Paz LX, hitting the bid on investing some $800 million uh, in, in that project in Argentina. So uh, bottom line, DLE as a strategy or unconventional uh resources or lower grade, you know, brine resources are using unconventional process techniques, not just solar evaporation ponds. Uh, so th there's been real traction. I should also mention standard lithium attracted a hundred million dollar investment from Coke industry. Uh, no so one has done more to raise the profile, in my opinion, uh, for DLE. Uh, the prince <laughs> of DLE, Alex Grant. Since, uh, since I left about three years ago, Alex raised uh, $170 million in two rounds. T. Rowe Price um, and Sumitomo are very proud of the, the progress that they've made. But, um, but for the last three years, I've been kind of independent consulting across Lithium. So I've worked on I've worked on dozens of lithium natural resource projects of all types. I've worked on brine projects, sediment projects, and spent a lot of time studying direct lithium extraction and, and, and writing on it to help other people kind of understand it better. Something I, something I put some thought into is kind of educating folks on the, the reality that, you know, Livent has in fact been using a DLE technology for two decades in Argentina at Umbro Muerto. And that suggests that there is no such thing as conventional and unconventional technology, right? For any particular brine, there are a whole bunch of different ways of making lithium chemicals from that brine. That's always true. So <clears throat> there's no such thing as conventional lithium processing. You know, the, the Silver Peak process used in Nevada that, that Albemarle uses today is, is different from what is done in the Atacama. In the Atacama, it's supposedly the same resource, but of course, geochemistry varies across it. You know, SQM and Albemarle process their brines very differently. Um, you know, Livent processes their brine totally differently in Argentina. And then the new brine projects in Argentina using chemicals and evaporation are doing it differently too. There's nothing conventional about any of that, right? The, the processing technology is, is bespoke and tailored to the resource, right? A good, a good chunk of my time over the last two years has also been doing life cycle assessment with Minviro in London. We've done probably 20 to 30 LCAs now on different lithium projects. We've, we've built life cycle assessment models on every single 
type of natural resource and you know every single lithium chemical you can imagine, I see a huge opportunity to minimize the environmental impacts of the battery supply chain before it's built. You know, that's the best time to make changes. Um, so exploring new process technologies that can minimize impacts or doing life cycle assessment to understand kind of the CO2 emission breakdown or the water use breakdown of a lithium product is, is really helpful right now so that we can build the supply chain the, in the best way it can possibly be with the lowest impact possible. So Alex, uh, the title of this uh, YouTube uh, video is North America's Unconventional Lithium Promise. So I wanna focus very much on North American resources. And you just said that when it comes to brine, there's no such thing as conventional. So when you think of brine conventional, I think just, oh, a solar evaporation pond, but that's not enough there. All the processes are different. I would argue that in hard rock, that it, you know, the conventional versus non-conventional, it, it, there are conventional ways. If you have a spodumene hard rock, that's pretty much, you know, when we, when we think of keep it simple, stupid, and you're, you're the you're the dealy prince here. So um, we're gonna use a different variation of KISS. Um, you know, for, for, for that moniker. But I, I want to spend, again, 80% of the time on unconventional lithium in America. And by that, I mean um, brines of various types, you know, a bit of sediment, and then maybe spend 20% of the time, you know, wearing your Enviro hat to discuss from a North American perspective, um, you know, the various assets, whether they be hard rock, brine, or other. And uh, on that score, I asked you, who has been publicly announced as a Minviro, um, you know, hired Minviro as a study, um, and, and Piedmont Lithium is one, Compass Minerals is another, an energy source, which is in the Salton Sea, Compass is in the Great Salt Lake of uh, Utah, and Piedmont's in North Carolina. Minviro has done other life cycle assessments for sediment assets and other assets, um, you know, throughout North America, but they haven't yet been publicly disclosed. So we could talk a little bit about that later, but from a, a resource perspective in North America, and, and some of my knowledge here, a lot of my knowledge here comes from stuff that you've already published. You know, there's the Salton Sea in California, uh, which is geothermal. There's the Smackover and Magnolia, which is standard lithium and Albemarle in Arkansas. There's the Leduc in Alberta, which is E3. There's Great Salt Lake, which is Utah, as I mentioned. There's Clayton Valley um, in largely Nevada. So those are resources, right? And then there are technologies, right? A number of companies are developing technology. So Lilac has a technology. Uh, Schlumberger has a technology that they're applying in the Clayton Valley. Um, Standard Lithium is applying its Lister and SIFT technology to Langsys's um, op bromine operations. Uh, Iliad is the technology of energy source, which is in the Salton Sea. And then E3 has its own technology. So that's the, the gamut. And uh, Rodney, you have a, a couple of questions here. I think that, that's a lead in. Alex, uh, there are different DLE technologies. It seems absorption and ion exchange are the two main ones. Can you please tell our audience in simple terms how they work and what differentiates them? Both involve the use of solid materials, which are capable of removing lithium or lithium chloride from a brine when those materials are contacted with the brine. In adsorption, I won't go into the, de the details of the mechanism or anything like this, but 
the lithium chloride sort of automatically goes into the material and then is removed with water. In ion exchange, acid is used to remove the lithium from the material, which creates a chemical driving force to remove lithium from the brine. Um, so they're not, they're not radically different from a mechanical perspective necessarily, though in some cases it can be. You know, there are there could be, you know, infinite variations of how you would perform either or. But that's the general principle. Is, are there any cost benefits or unique features, or is it simply a case of each unique brand having a single optimal process route? Projects which consume more energy and more reagents will have a higher cost profile, right? That, that applies to mineral projects as well, obviously. Um, some adsorption projects have very high reagent use. Some ion exchange projects have very high reagent use and, and vice versa. Um, so it, it's very project specific and it, it also depends on kind of the flow sheet that you put around the DLE technology. There are ways to reduce costs um, kind of electrochemically by regenerating acid, for example, that different folks are pursuing like st standards last um, technical report described. But, um, but something that is definitely true is that every process and every technology is tuned to the specific brine geochemistry. Um, there, there are some technologies that are more applicable to a wider kind of range of brines, depending on, on the chemistry. But ultimately, the flow sheet and the project is specific, which is you know, also true for mineral projects, of course. When I look at the world, what's very topical are these S's connected to supply chains. So secure sustainable, scalable supply chain. It's a concern, what's happening in Chile, what's happening in Argentina, just like the reliability of global Western auto OEMs on uh, the, the, the existing supply chains just it won't work long-term. So there's, there's a scalability issue because we, we have to increase lithium production by like seven times over the next kind of 10 years. I've been doing this for 12 years. And in lithium 1.0, lithium 2.0, you look at the brine concentrations in the Solar de Atacama, you know, a thousand or more PPMs of lithium, that, that was a great project, right? And you're also looking if you had low magnesium. So uh, projects like Olaraz in Oracobre or Alchem now and Kachari, th these are 700, 800 PPM brines, I think. Um, you know, Slar Atacama is you know, north of a thousand. There's a lot of older, uh, experienced people from this industry who have been a bit dismissive of DLE or have said, we've tried all of this before. How important is the headline lithium PPM when you're looking at an asset? How important is it if it has, let's say, you know, high magnesium? Is DLE disruptive in a sense of lowering the cost of production? What is the point of DLE, right? Why does it matter? The lithium industry has severe scalability and expansion challenge ahead of it to grow seven, eight, nine X in the next 10 years, right? And reliance on making lithium chemicals in a handful of jurisdictions is a, is a threat and a risk to the industry scalability. What DLE does in unlocking low-grade, less pure brines in places like California or Nevada or Utah, Alberta, Arkansas, Germany, et cetera, is eliminate a lot of sort of 
fake problems, right? Like if you can make lithium chemicals in California or Nevada, then you don't have to deal with a lot of fake issues in Argentina, like currency control issues or issues in Chile, like politics. If we can unlock low-grade, less pure brands in North America or Europe, it, it, it eliminates the need to overcome those types of issues. And it allows us to just focus on making the lithium chemicals we need as fast as possible. So the point, the point isn't to necessarily radically reduce costs. It kind of doesn't matter if you're selling your product for fourteen or $16,000 a ton, if your OPEX is four, five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 per ton. Infrastructure matters. And that's also a beauty of the North America is that you have a lot of infrastructure. So could you run through Salton Sea, Smackover, Magnolia, Leduc, Great Salt Lake, Clayton Valley? There are three different project developers in the Salton Sea in Southern California. Two of them, Brownfield. So they want to put lithium extraction and lithium processing onto the back of an operating geothermal energy plant already existing, brine's already flowing, and one greenfield, which is controlled thermal resources. They are all taking different DLE technology approaches, which is, which is I think, a good thing because it promotes new ideas that, um, you know, one or more of them may be successful and then we'll have, we'll have a more flushed out toolbox to work with in the future. The Salton Sea is the only major geothermal mineralized brine lithium resource that I know of in North America. And it is, is really massive, right? So it's really big. Yeah, this, the Salton Sea in, in the most, in, in, the, in kind of the middle of the geothermal field, in the most mineralized brines contains between like 150 to 300. And I think I've seen even higher than that PPM of, of lithium in the brine. What, what it also contains though, is a lot of transition metals, like iron and manganese and zinc, and a lot of silica. And those components are, can be very challenging for DLE technologies. It's, it's public information that, you know, most efforts are focused on removing of those materials and they need to be either put back in the brine or disposed of. So that, that's kind of a, a drawback to, to geothermal brine in, in, in Southern California that doesn't apply to all geothermal brines, of course. Two are two oil field brines. So you have E3 metals in Alberta and, um, and Standard Lithium and a couple other folks in Arkansas. Uh, kind of in the Smackover, which is a formation ranging from Texas all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. It's absolutely massive. I think um, I think both those both those folks are doing some pretty diligent process development work. Uh, oil field brines typically contain between you know 25 to 200 ppm of lithium, so maybe maybe a little bit lower than the Salton Sea, for example. The last kind of focus area for brines in North America is the sort of Nevada to Utah corridor, which is kind of a pretty kind of salty desert. So ranging from the Great Salt Lake to Clayton Valley, there are, there's probably two or three dozen lithium brine exploration projects. Um, there's, there's Compass operating or, you know, piloting and preparing to operate on, uh, on, the, on the northeast side of the Great Salt Lake. U.S. Magnesium, which makes magnesium metal on the south end of the Great Salt Lake, um, started producing lithium carbonate all the way into Nevada, down to Clayton Valley, there's, you know, a ton of brine exploration work going on. And those, those are more, those are more shallow brines. So they're not deep, like oil field and geothermal brines, um, which means that some of them could have very favorable geochemistry, like potentially kind of, you know, mid-range to high grade and very, very low, very low concentrations of elements that might cause problems like, like silica or iron. But I'm definitely very excited about what, what Compass is doing. On the Great Salt Lake, it's um, very, you know, super prospective 
project, in my opinion. Uh, you know, they know how all that brine flows. They know the chemistry like the back of their hand. So with 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 the right, you know, diligent process development work, um, I'm I'm sure they'll be able to unlock that. Uh, you know, some of the recent transactions we've seen, I think some of them are driven by the size of the resource. So you know, in terms of move the needle for a big company, someone like like Rio's, but I guess my question to you is it can be a big resource. And I understand that there are some nuances, but realistically, what percentage of a resource can you recover using DLE? Yeah, that's that's gonna be super specific to the geology, right? Um, you know, if, if I scope out a 7 million ton exploration target, <laughs> right, before I even define anything, like, you know, what fraction of that, of that at the end of the day will I be able to actually make into lithium chemicals? You know, a heck of a lot less than 100%, that's for sure. And not because of the DLE and not because of the lithium chemical processing, but because of subsurface concerns, right? You have to you have to manage the flow of brine in a way that it doesn't dilute your resource, right? Because if I'm pumping up brine and then pumping down brine without lithium somewhere else, I can't I can't allow short circuiting of those wells, or else I'm going to start pumping up brine without lithium. In it. You don't want contamination. So. Subsurface hydrogeology work for DLE projects is so important both for deep brines like I'm describing, but also, also shallow brines. Um, you, you cannot let those brines mix too much. I mean, they'll eventually mix to some extent, you know, but you have to minimize that mixing. Um, Schlumberger, if you, to the extent that you know what's happening there, um, you know, they're investing $50 million in the Clayton Valley. Could you help us understand Honestly, that? Honestly, Schlumberger is not publicly listed as a lithium company and there's very little public information on what they're doing. But what I would say is that Schlumberger is, is probably looking to figure out two things at Clayton Valley. One, build their competence in DLE and lithium processing, which is a unique competence that is not found in oil and gas industry today, for example. And two, understand how to solve the types of subsurface problems that, that Rodney and I were just chatting about that, um, that Schlumberger wants to kind of master so that they can they can leverage to provide services to other DLE projects. You think this is just Schlumberger R&D? You don't think that, the, you know, it doesn't sound like you think that they're looking into the lithium industry. I, I'm not I'm not sure. I, re, I really don't know. Um, I mean, they've communicated yeah. that, that they want to build a, a, you know, five to 10,000 ton per year lithium project. And I hope they do. That'd be fabulous. Um, the way I think about it is that Schlumberger will either build a lithium project with someone or on their own and license technology, or they will purely license it. And, and provide services. How is the Leduc similar to Smackover? You know, how is E3 similar to Standard Lithium, and, and how is it? Because we often compare it to Standard Lithium and basically say it's you know, yeah. 18 to 24 months behind, and hopefully yeah. E3 will will pilot and demonstrate and make the same progress, and hopefully both will be successful. But how, for someone who's looking at both of these? companies, you know, they are similar and they are publicly traded and full disclosure, you know, RK Equity, you know, we represent E3, um, but we really want to further understand this. Um, and I think our viewers do as well. The, the main, the main thread that I consider similar between them is that they're both, they're both found in kind of limestone dolomite type geologies. So they, they both have relatively high calcium concentrations in those brines. And, and kind of the low energy of the brine also means that problematic metals that get dissolved in the salt and sea, for example, don't get dissolved to the same levels. The a main difference is that E3, E3 has lower lithium grades in their brines in Alberta. Um, so I think smackovers ranging from 
you know, 100 to 200 plus ppm in some places. And, and I, I've heard that there's pockets of higher grade out there, but I don't, I don't know if you can really reliably produce that for 30 years. But E3, E3 has kind of more in the range of, I think, 75 ppm or something like that. So it's about half the grade. And, and that just means you need to move more brine as long as, as long as that doesn't compromise some kind of thermodynamic requirement for taking the lithium out. Um, then it just means you have to move more brine, which, which is an OPEX driver, but doesn't necessarily blow up the cost of making lithium chemicals from the resource. Someone um, uh, who, who is traditional mining investor told me like the head grade, you know, matters in hard rock because, you know, you, you have to move a lot of overburden, but in liquids, it, it's less of a concern. It really is a function of flow rate, right? And recovery. So if something is low PPM, but the flow rate can be high, it's a matter of how fast mm -hmm. you can move the water, how fast you can concentrate the lithium. Um, and my understanding before we even started working with E3, you told me that, um, you know, this is an, this is oil country. They're, it's a water movement exercise in a significant um, way. And they have that, they know how to move water, right? <laughs> in Alberta um, is the same. Is that accurate, you know, for a layman's kind of description? And is that um, how is that similar or different from what you understand, uh, you know, standard lithium's issues are? Yeah, I think, I think what you said is true. You know, what else, so, so, so what matters a lot is, is grade, as you said, um, the permeability of, of the unit that you're producing the brine from. But I, I would add also what, what I think is really important is the thickness of the unit, right? So if you can only flow in, in X, Y in two dimensions, and you can't get any flow coming up from below, then that limits the flow rate you can get out of the well. Um, but again, it's like super location specific, right? Like there's no generalities here at all. Let's quickly shift uh, to uh, Enviro sustainability of let's say Quebec, Ontario, North Carolina, and then also the, the sediments in Nevada. Uh, and then also if you can comment on Tesla's strategy. I know you've talked about uh, that on other podcasts. So at Minviro, we use prospective life cycle assessment, which is a scientific methodology to quantify and, and accurately model the environmental impacts of making battery metals and lithium chemicals. There are a, a number of different impact categories you can talk about in life cycle assessment. So CO2 emissions or global warming potential is one impact category. Um, water scarcity footprint is another impact category. Land use is another impact categories, or you know, sometimes a number of different sub-impact categories. Um, they're all they're all fundamentally different, right? So, you know, using more water does not impact necessarily your CO2 emission intensity profile. Um, there, there are sometimes it, sometimes it acts like a lever system where if you if you push one down, the other goes up, and vice versa. But um, but that's a function of kind of the technology and not the methodology of, of quantifying the impacts. Is what is generally mostly true is that in a brine, lithium is already dissolved in water, right? So nature has input the energy required to liberate it from a mineral over the course of you know hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years. If you're processing a mineral like spodumene or or, or a sedimentary mineral, for example. Um, there, there's energy you need to kind of put into that system to remove the lithium from the mineral and make a solution. The lithium needs to go into water for it to be processed into a lithium chemical. That's always true. And 
if that extra energy is provided by you know fossil fuels, for example, then that's going to drive up the CO2 emissions of making a lithium chemical from from hard rock, right, or or sediment. Um, so that that's usually sort of true, but it can be decarbonized, right? So high temperature thermal processing can be decarbonized. Philbora is working on that with Calix in Australia. So that's for the calcination step of, of kind of removing, helping remove lithium from the mineral. Mining can be decarbonized. Sigma lithium in Brazil is, is, has publicly, you know, disclosed that they're pursuing a biodiesel approach to cut their CO2 emissions in their mine. So hard rock projects kind of start at a higher CO2 kind of base. They are fundamentally decarbonizable, just like a brine project, just like a sediment project. One other sort of drawback for sediments in particular, just based on the geology of kind of how they're formed and, and what they are, is they often contain they often contain large quantities of carbonate minerals like like calcite um, and, and dolomite, um, so calcium and magnesium carbonates. When those minerals, which are mixed in with the lithium minerals, are raised to a high temperature or acidified with an acid like sulfuric acid, they, they react and emit CO2 directly. So this is, a, this is a CO2 emission, which is not associated with burning of fossil fuels. It's distinct and it, and it comes actually from the mineral. If you have a low grade sediment and you're not removing any of those carbonates, then the carbonates in the mineral can totally blow up the embodied CO2 emissions of your final lithium chemical, because you will be essentially reacting so many carbonates, so much, so much carbonate material with acid and making CO2 in the process of getting the lithium out of your mineral. It would be you know, significantly more CO2 than you would ever get from burning fossil fuels from making lithium chemicals. And that's a real risk. So sediment, sedimentary clay projects really need to pay attention to their carbonates and spend time trying to figure out how to remove those carbonates as well. That's really, that's, it's possible and, and it's desirable because um, that can really help reduce the CO2 emissions of the process. That last bit that you just said on the carbonates, I've never heard anywhere um, spoken about. And I've been watching every asset in America for like a long period of time. And, and um, you know, I started my career uh, in lithium, um, you know, in, in 2009 with what, what is now the Thacker Pass project. Um, and we've looked, we've done some work for Ioneer, but I haven't heard, um, you're saying that there's, it's one thing with the inputs to manufacture it, right? Which if it's diesel or whatever is high carbon intensity, mm -hmm. but you're actually saying that the material itself um, may have, uh, you know, be, be carbon dioxide emitting. I mean, and that that's not, is that true of, of brines of any type or is that true of hard rock? Can that happen in the hard rock process? Yeah. So I, I don't think, I, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a hard rock, like a pegmatite derived mineral ever have that issue in a, in a really major way. Um, I have seen it with brines. So some deep brines can have quite a high concentration of dissolved CO2 in them from dissolving carbonates in the brine very deep down at high temperatures. Um, so that, that it is possible also for brines to kind of have to deal with that with brines. It's kind of nice because it's, it's kind of easier, I guess, potentially you could say, because you, when you, when you produce the brine and, re and reduce the temp the pressure, if you're reducing the pressure of the brine, the CO2 will actually come out of the brine and you can capture it and then put it right back in the brine when you're done with it. So that, that's pretty, that's relatively straightforward. And that's already done 
for geothermal energy that's already done in oil and gas. So it's, it's a conventional um, kind of problem set. For sediments, for sedimentary clay in mineral projects for lithium, um, I think it would be probably harder to capture that CO2. Probably not impossible, but but probably more challenging. But the real the real the real problem is where do you put the CO2 even if you capture it, right? Maybe there maybe you build a separate injection well to pump CO2 back into the ground, but then you're then you have a whole other kind of set of problems you have to solve associated with you know leakage of that CO2 potentially depending on how deep it is or you know solving for enhancing enhancing mineralization of that CO2 underground. So there's there's kind of there's kind of an easy fix in the brine context, but there isn't really an easy fix in the sediment context. The final question is just on Tesla. We've talked about a acid-free uh, process as opposed to the mm -hmm. acid uh, processes used elsewhere. But mm -hmm. you know maybe they have the solve you know solution to this uh, carbonate. I, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have any sense of what's happening? And is this a realistic yeah. Uh, option. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, you're hinting at something that is potentially true, which is that if the carbonates are not acidified, and if the carbonates are not elevated to a super high temperature, then it's possible they would stay solid and not turn into CO2. If Tesla is taking kind of a mechanochemistry approach to kind of knocking out the lithium with, with, a, with sodium ion, with salt, then that, that could end up leaving the carbonate as a solid. So it would end up in the tailings instead of that CO2 in the air. 